for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. We're going to talk. Thanks. We're continuing. I started a series last week titled Intentional Conversations. If you weren't here for that, my, my plan is to have a focused time of teaching regarding prayer. The church, man, we talk a big game. You know, well, I'm going to pray for you. I'm a prayer warrior. I'm blah, blah, blah. Man, y'all's superpower is to forget what I've asked prayer for before I get what I'm asking for prayer for out of my mouth a lot of times, it feels like. And I'm the same way. That's why when people say, hey, will you pray for me? I say, yeah, let's pray right now. Because I've been punched in the head enough times, I may not remember five minutes from now. But if we're going to say we're people of prayer, we have to pray for people, for things, for the will of God to be done. Amen? We have to be intentional. Our conversations are surrounding prayer have to be intentional. And so that's, that's what I want to talk about. And I started that last week with what we define as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and when I say we define it, somebody throughout history has defined it as Lord's Prayer. I'm going to show you why that's not exactly the case in just a few moments. But we, we need to be people of prayer. And we started last week with the expectation of prayer, the, the focused intentionality of what our prayer should look like. And so prayer, when, when we say the Lord's Prayer, this is, this is really what Jesus means. His prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a response to a question he was asked in an intimate moment by his 12 disciples. So it wasn't a prayer. It's a teaching. I need y'all to grab a hold of that because that's going to be a big deal in a minute. Because in Luke, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, can you teach us to pray as John, that is John the Baptist, teaches his disciples to pray? And so he says, yes. And then there's a short version of the what we call the Lord's Prayer there. But the entire version is in Matthew chapter 6, which is where we'll be teaching today. And so he has this conversation with them. Prayer is just conversation. They are praying in their conversation because they are in the presence of the 100% God in flesh. Everybody all right? Why do I emphasize conversation? Because that's all that prayer is. We get so wrapped up in the nuance, the position, the words, the, the, the just what we should do, what we should say, that we lose focus on what we're actually doing. You guys ever do that? You be praying, you're like, well, I didn't use the right word there. And then I backtrack and try to use a better word. Maybe that's just me. Stop worrying about all that and just be intentional about whatever you say and be honoring and glorifying in whatever you say because it's just a conversation. Amen? Amen. And so last week we talked about the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Pray, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I explained to you how... This is a teaching, not a prayer. And because it's a teaching, this isn't something necessarily to be repeated over and over, although there's nothing wrong with repeating it if you're intentional about it. It is more a hanger, a framework by which we drape our prayers on. Everybody got me? 
So he's saying, listen, here's some bullet points about prayer. Where your need exists, where your worship exists, hang it from this outline. And so he starts with, like I talked about last week, our Father. Our Father declares paternity. It declares that we are children of the light, that we're not children of darkness, that by the work of Jesus Christ, we belong to God and God belongs to us. Amen. Our Father, which means that we have all the rights and privileges of having a Father that cares and wants to be intimate with us. And so when I pray our Father, I, I may not say our Father, but I will say, God, thank you for the opportunity that you love me. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent Jesus to die for me while I was still a sinner. You guys hear me pray these kind of prayers all the time. That is my declaration of our Father. Because I need to establish before I do anything else, I have a right to be in this room. Yes. I have a right to be in a throne room expecting to receive. Yes. Amen. Amen. And so our Father who art in heaven really is twofold. There's two purpose fold, two purpose reason for this bullet point. And the first one is our Father who art in heaven means that he's transcendent. He's above our problems. Oh, praise the Lord. His perspective is better than your perspective. Because he's in heaven, how many of you guys seem to fall, or maybe when you were younger, just fell into the same situation, the same problem all the time? You know, I do this, and I see the consequence of that, but then I, I do it again anyway, and then I do it again. It's because you don't have the right perspective. Perhaps if we said, God, you are in heaven, and because you were in heaven, can you give me your perspective regarding my situation? I don't know which way to turn. I don't know where to go. But because you are in heaven, because you are above it all, because you hold me in your righteous right hand, you can tell me that. And the Bible says if we ask God for wisdom, which perspective is part of wisdom, he will give it to us abundantly and without reproach. That means more than you can stand and not even be mad about it. Amen. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I move from that paternity to position to holiness. God, you're holy. I recognize and acknowledge that you are perfect in every way and that I am imperfect. I recognize that you are without blemish. And because of who you are, holiness has two purposes, two meanings. One is absolute perfection. And the other one means to be set aside. And so because of that, I set you aside in my life as preeminent, as supreme, as the one by which I'm going to make all my decisions, take all my actions. You are in heaven. I'm not. Hallowed be your name. Amen. And not only hallowed then, but because he is perfect, I should set myself aside because he set me aside and remove myself from the things that I've been doing. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm just trying to review because I want you, if you weren't here, or even if you were to hear it again, hallowed be thy name. And then it ends on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That's a lot of words. Let me tell you what that means. That means that you are in the kingdom of heaven right now if you have declared Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Did you know that? You're not waiting for some eternal kingdom of heaven. You're part of the kingdom of heaven right now. Now there will be a physical eternity in the heavenlies. But for now, you are in the kingdom of heaven spiritually. Let me tell you what that means. That means you need to act according to the will of God. Because everywhere you go, you bring the kingdom of heaven with you. And when I pray, God, bring your will on earth as it is in heaven, that happens through me. 
That happens through you. Everywhere I step my foot through me, to me, or in me, to me, and then through me to the people around me that they might know the kingdom of heaven too. Because that's what God's will is, right? right? What's God's perfect will for everybody? Single greatest perfect will for everybody is that everybody come to a knowing understanding of Christ Jesus as Lord. That is the primary reason he came. Now, there's a bunch of other micro wills in your life. There's something specific he has for you. But until you get saved, until he, he hears that confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe it in your heart, God raised him from the dead, until there's a moment of repentance, you're not, it. You're not there. Everybody okay? So that's a lot of stuff. But it's so important. You see how I hang my prayers on that? It's not a prayer specific, although I'm not condemning you for saying it word for word. I can't. It's beautiful by itself. But you can hang your, your own prayers on that too, and you should. Why? Because it establishes a foundation for the rest of the prayer. I know who I belong to. I know who I'm talking to. I know what he expects of me, and I fully intend to glorify him in everything that I am and everything that I do. But sometimes we ain't got time for all that. Let's be honest. Sometimes we just have, we just need life vest prayers, right? You know, Lord, I need some help. Y'all look at me like I got three eyeballs on my face. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Peter, when he was walking on the water and then he stopped walking on the water and started sinking, what did he say? Help me, Lord. He didn't say, dear Heavenly Father, God, in the name of Jesus, as I'm slowly inching down into the depths of this abyss, Lord, I ask that by your holy, righteous right hand that you snatch me up out of this place, dear God, because you are king above kings, the Alpha, the Omega. He didn't say any of that. What did he say? Help me, Lord. You know why he was able to say that and expect an answer? Because he had already declared that with his life beforehand. He already had set a foundation, but sometimes it's okay to take the time to build that foundation too. Amen? That's good. That's good preaching, Pastor Jim. Thanks. That's good right there. All right, so all of that to say this. He hasn't even made an ask yet, A-S-K. Well, you never know, man. I got a southern accent, and this microphone does crazy stuff sometimes. Uh, he hasn't even made an ask yet because we need to make sure that we're in a position to ask first. Yes. Amen. Amen. And so what I want to talk to you about is the second half of this prayer. Second half, starting with verse 11, says, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, 14 and 15 aren't part of the outline. That's just Jesus reiterating the importance of forgiveness. And I'll explain why in just a few moments. But just so you know, um, 11 through 13 is the actual prayer. So I want to cover that today. And I want to cover that... Um, in three points. But before I do that, I want to I want to focus in on one word. And that's give. 
Oh, Lord, Pastor Dunn said give. He's going to ask us to take out our money again. No. When people come to you and say, give me that, or give me, or just give, how does that just immediately set your disposition? It seems arrogant. It seems presupposing, right? Doesn't it? When somebody comes up to you just out of the blue and says, give me that. I don't want to give you that. Tell me why I ought to give you that. So, but we're not coming to God arrogantly. We're not coming to God in hubris. We're coming to God in confidence and in expectation based on the information, based on the prayer that we've already prayed, that we do belong to him, that he is holy, that he is capable, that it is his will all of these things, and because he is all of those things, Lord, give. Amen? Amen. And he will, uh, if we do the word of God, which is this. Pray in faith. Pray according to the name of Jesus. Pray with confidence. Amen? You say faith and confidence ain't the same thing? Maybe so, but the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 16, boldness. It says, come boldly unto the throne room of grace that you might receive mercy and grace in your time of need. So it's not arrogant for us to go ask God give. It's arrogant for us to ask God give without glory. Amen? Amen. But we're assuming you haven't done that because we've already talked about how to set ourselves up so that we might honor God and reverence him the way that we should. And so he says this. I'm going to make three points. God, first, God is the source of our provision. He is the source of our provision. 11, give us this day our daily bread. He establishes, first, let me tell you, he establishes the schedule for our provision. This day is beautiful for two reasons. Let me explain to you why. First, this day is a statement of trust. Lord, give me this day. I trust you. I trust that you're going to take care of me today. I trust that I can, I can give you anything that I have and you will hold it, that you will take care of it, that you haven't forgotten me or forsaken me. The Bible says, Jesus is teaching later on in this text about anxiety, and he says, why are you so anxious? Don't be anxious. I'm paraphrasing. He said, the birds in the air don't worry about what they're going to eat. The flowers don't worry about what they're going to wear. You don't think I care more about you than I care about them? Of course he does. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, for you. Amen? Amen. The only thing that we have to do is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of this will be added to us. This day, this day means I'm going to trust him today. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to seek his face instead. Well, that's where we fall short, ain't it? We expect a daily provision without a daily seeking. And we can do better. That's right, I say what I say. We need to be a people who seek, truly seek, not give lip service to seeking, but truly seek. And all of this will be added to you. What am I telling you? I'm telling you this. Submit it to him. Trust it in him and leave it with him. 
That's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow, man. Because life's tough, isn't it? Man, we get in trouble when, like, I, I've done this before, but I get this problem. I got this problem. Problem is, ain't no money. But I got this problem. And I lay it on the altar. And I, I leave that. I submit that to God. God, that's yours. I'm not going to worry about it. God, hey, man, I'm serious. That's yours. How did you take care of that? And then when he doesn't move it as fast as we think it should be moved, what do we do? We pick it back up because we didn't trust him. We submitted it, but we didn't trust it. We should submit it to him, trust it in him, and then leave it with him. Oh, but he's not giving me an answer. Oh, he's giving you an answer. Let me tell you, you get an answer the second you pray, and it's going to be one of three answers. It's going to be yes, no, or not right now, because if I give it to you right now, it's going to destroy you because you don't have what you need to be able to live or live righteously in that situation. But no is an appropriate answer. God, help me with my finances. No. Your finances ain't jacked up. You're stupid. Come on. Well, man, the enemy's attacking my finances. Is he really? Because you went out Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, drinking, chasing women. Now you're broke on Sunday, wanting Jesus to fix in 30 minutes what you took six, six and a half days to mess up. Anyway, trust. It says, I trust you, Lord. But this day also says something else. This day urges repetitive prayer. God, help me with my daily ration today and then tomorrow and then the next day. It keeps me on my face in front of God. It causes me to be reliant upon Him. So as I'm seeking, I trust. And as I trust, I rely, knowing that He hasn't forgotten me, that He's going to take care of me. And so I approach Him every single day so that I might be reliant. Why do you think God dropped manna every single day on the Israelites because they needed to trust him. So many of us just want to gather. And then when we gather and we have more than we need, we act like we don't need God anymore. But our daily bread, give us this day, says I trust you today. I need you today. I need you tomorrow. I need you the next day. And if, if you're not there, let me tell you, you need him every single day. And then God not only sets the schedule for our provision, he, he is the substance of our provision. What does that mean? That means we got to stop seeking God for his stuff and recognize we're seeking God for God and he just happens to give us stuff. Amen. I've said this before, but many of us seek the P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S of God, the presence of God, instead of the P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E of God the presence of God, and so we don't get either. We got to recognize that God is capable. He is the substance for our provision. When we don't seek him daily, when we don't just pursue him, when we're not reliant upon him, it builds an arrogance in us to think that somehow we are our provision. You guys have heard it. I don't need God. What do I need God for? I got what I got by the strength of my own back and the sweat of my own brow. I got what I got by my intellect. That's arrogance. And the Bible says there's six things God hates. And the first one on that list is haughtiness. And I don't know if that's an actual by priority list, but I'm going to try to stay off that anyway. 
So it keeps us focused on the source. Remember the source of the God, that, that he is the source. I've seen so many people, and it breaks my heart. Can I tell you, as a pastor, it truly breaks my heart to see people come and they seek the face of God because they're in some desperate situation, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. There should be a hope in the local church. And so they come here and they search and then they find and then they're wrapped in a fellowship of believers. And they, be, they begin to prosper because so-and-so within the fellowship, God has moved on their heart to help them financially or provide a job for them or just walk alongside them in their depression or whatever. And then they start growing and you start seeing some maturity. And then they start getting a job and then they start scheduling their job on Sunday. And then they start prioritizing their stuff over their Savior. And then before you know it, they're blessed out of their Jesus completely saying, I don't need Jesus. I got this on my own. You ready to recognize your source, it will be stripped away from you. I've seen it hundred times or better. In this church, people leave a year and a half later, they come back absolutely and completely broken again, wondering what happened to them. Let me tell you what happened to them. You worried more about your presence instead of the presence of God. And he decided to take both from you so that you'd fall back in. Amen. That's good. Come on. That's beautiful. And so we should recognize that in our prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I recognize, Lord, that I'm reliant on you. I trust you. I follow you. I pursue you. You are my everything. And I recognize that you're the source. I'm not the source. I know that I don't have the physical or mental capability to do anything on my own. But because of you and the spirit that you've placed in me, I have the ability to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Am I making any sense? So see how it's a it's a hanger by which we Lay our prayers upon. That's good. Number two, Jesus is the provision for forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Listen to me, although this prayer isn't a request for forgiveness as it relates to salvation, it is necessary for us to understand without salvation, we have no hope of being forgiven beyond salvation. You got to put first steps first. We need to recognize that Jesus provided us the opportunity to be forgiven so that we can forgive others and we can be forgiven by others. Everybody all right with that? If you're not, let me talk to you about the gospel. Jesus did that because he had to, because we have a sin problem. Our sin problem dooms us, damns us, if you will, to destruction. We are judged from the day we are born because we are sinful according to the word by both birth and action. But God, praise the Lord, sent his son Jesus that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the work of God, the work of Jesus, the plan of God, the work of Jesus to be the provision for our forgiveness. God, that's so good. And we fight against it. In our spirit, in our, in our natural man, John 3.19 says, this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world and men loved the darkness. You guys ever met somebody that loved the darkness? I loved the darkness. When I was in the dark, man, I was, I was good at it. Rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We loved our degenerative darkness. But the spirit of God provoked us. The blood of Jesus saved us. The plan of God prepared for us. 
Man, that's, I ain't even going to say it again, but y'all know what I'm saying. But in the providing that forgiveness, Jesus established a plea for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. You got to be intentional about repenting. Hear what I'm saying. You can't say, don't be flippant about asking God to forgive you of your sin. You need to be intentional about forgiveness. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to dig that sin out of you. You need to be able to say, Lord, forgive me, not of, of those sins I committed, because that is weak. What you need to be able to do is have the confidence to say, Lord, forgive me for fill-in-the-blank sin. Because until I'm, that's one thing you can name and claim. Name and claim your sin so that Jesus will take it from you. Amen. I claim, I believe, I know that I did this, Lord, and I'm asking you specifically to forgive me of this. You're all, man, that creates shame in me. That's good. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Now, that's contrary to common vernacular because, uh, you know, you're not supposed to shame anybody. You should be ashamed of your sin. But once you're, but not condemned by it. You're ashamed of it. It creates sadness in you. And that sadness of you creates a repentant heart in you. That repentant heart in you creates confession. And in that confession, you're restored back to righteousness. And the convict, the condemnation and the shame is gone. Because Jesus. Oh, that's good. Jesus. I think Dallas would like this one. Amen. Amen. But he establishes the plea. 1 John 1, 19. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. We just have to ask him to forgive it. There's no sin that you've committed that had God going, what? You did what? Man, in all the millennia in the universe, I ain't never seen nobody do something like that. Jesus, check this cat out. Nothing you did surprised Jesus or God. He knew before he died on the cross the sins that you would commit and gave his life anyway. But it says if we confess, he does two things for us. He forgives us, which means he removes that sin from us. As far as from the east as the west, places it behind him, throws it into the sea, of the different verse, verses that are out there that declares that we no longer have ownership of that and God can't see it from where he is. Amen? Amen? But he doesn't just forgive us. How many of you guys have forgiven somebody but don't care to hang out with them? Right on. There's people in South America, man, I don't even know. I ain't trying to hang out with them. I ain't got nothing against them. There's people in this town. I've let it go. I've forgiven some stuff. I've been forgiven of some stuff. But guess what we ain't doing? We're not having coffee tomorrow. They just exist like that dude in South America exists. They just, praise be unto God, let them live their life, do their thing. But God didn't do that to us. He forgave us and then restored us to righteousness. You know what righteousness is? Right standing. Our right standing is right in front of him. So he's still not only willing to forgive you, but be in relationship with you. If we confess our sin. God, that's so good. 
and we must. According to Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgression, for those of you, and I'm not trying to be ugly, who might be hiding some secret sin in your life, or maybe it's something that you're not even dealing with anymore. You just haven't asked forgiveness for it. Listen to this. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You got to ask yourself, what do you want? Lack of prosperity or compassion? Seems simple enough to me. I don't know about you, but I'm erring on the side of compassion. But you have to ask forgiveness. I know I'm beating this to death. You have to ask forgiveness. It may, like I said, it may be something you're not even dealing with anymore. Let me challenge you to something. It's going to mess some of y'all up. It messed me up when God put it on me. You're married. You're living righteously. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. But before you got married, you lived in sin with that man or woman. That sin's still out there. Your marriage didn't forgive your sin. You still need to ask forgiveness for that sin. God, what? Just something to think about. Just because you're no longer still in it doesn't mean it's still not against you. You need to ask God to forgive it. And that's not a condemning thing. That's me trying to help you to make sure that you are forgiven and standing in righteousness. Amen? All right. So he offers the, the plea and the prerequisite for forgiveness as we have forgiven our debtors. Mm. We have to forgive. That's, that's the worst. <laughs> Y'all have anybody you would rather not forgive about some stuff? I do too. Man, about three or four months ago, we were doing communion. And I was talking about forgiveness. And I asked the crowd, I said, do you have anybody you just you just hate? And I, I didn't mean to say it like that, but some dude raised his hand. He goes, I do. And I was like, oh, well, let's talk about that after service. <laughs> we have to forgive people. We have to forgive people. We have to forgive people. Listen, it's not your option to whether or not you're going to forgive someone. You have to forgive people. I know you're all, okay, I got it. No, I don't think you do because you're still carrying around. Many of us still carry around bitterness. God doesn't desire for us to carry around. We have to forgive folks. Amen. Why? Because we were forgiven. He who is forgiven much does what? Loves much. You ever heard the Bible verse that says, the love covers a multitude of sins? Do you know how your love covers a multitude of sins? Because it forgives the sins that have been committed against you, even if they don't ask. The humble, Christ-like person is almost impossible to offend, if not impossible to offend. Does this say anywhere in the Scripture where Jesus was offended? He just handled his business. You know why? Because he was humble. And we should be humble enough to forgive. And here's a piece. It's the hardest lesson I've ever learned in my whole life. You ready for it? I would write it down. Not everybody needs to know your side of the story. Amen. Everybody wants to go around and talk about somebody and why they're mad at somebody all the time. But you keep that to yourself and let it go yourself so that you can walk in the wholeness you're called to. God will deal with them. But we have to forgive because we've been forgiven. I, I don't believe we're ever more Christ-like than when we forgive. 
But you're all, Pastor Jim, you don't know what he did to me or she did to me. I don't, but I know what I did to Jesus. You, he don't deserve that. She don't deserve my forgiveness. Maybe not. But Jesus didn't deserve the cross either. And he was willing to forgive us. And for that reason, we should forgive others. Amen. So that's the prerequisite. If we want to be forgiven, we got to be willing to forgive. 14 and 15 says this, For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Listen to me. How are you saved? I want to be very clear about this. How are you saved? You're saved by grace and faith. Amen? Grace, faith. God extends grace. You declare in faith, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you are positionally sanctified. You are secure in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, as you grow in Christ's likeness, there's a continual sanctification process. And so as God chips stuff out of us, as he shows us stuff, as we forgive other people, this kind of thing happens. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because we need to acknowledge that it's not forgiveness, our forgiveness of others that saves us, but it does prove that we're saved. Yes. You know, I'm saved, but I hate that guy. No, you ain't saved. You're probably not saved. I'm not going to say you're not saved. I'm going to say you need to get on your knees and seek to face a guy because there's something standing you between you and the true righteousness that God has for you. Amen. Amen. Forgiveness doesn't save you. That's the point I'm making. Forgiveness proves you. Amen. And I don't know about you, man, but I want to be proven. And sometimes that means setting aside stuff that offends me, that's hard for me, that makes me mad. Because it's really not that big a deal at the end of it all. Is it? No. no, it's not. What's a big deal is that we're obedient to the Word of God. And so I ask, Lord God, please forgive me. I know I've fallen short. According to your Word, all of us have. That I am degenerate by nature, but through Christ Jesus, you made me whole. God, I ask that anything that I'm doing, insert sin here. God, forgive me of that. By the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit, strengthen me so that I don't fall back into that. Yes. Yes, Lord. Lord God, I ask, Heavenly Father, that as you strengthen me and forgive me, that you teach me love for others that allows me to forgive them, yes. to see them as you see them. You see how I'm praying by the outline that Jesus gave, this conversation that he's having with his disciples. And then... Finally, and it's the last point I'll make, God delivers us from temptation. Verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We get messed up because in today's society, we think a trial and temptation are the same thing, and so we're not sure how to respond to either one. Let me tell you, trial is what God uses to perfect you. Temptation is of the enemy to destroy you. This thing that I got going on with my health that I've been dealing with for however many years, that's a trial in my life to make sure that no matter what's going on in my life, that I pursue God and the calling that he's placed on my life. And I'm willing to accept 
this trial that I might ultimately be perfected. Do I believe that there's some point going to be a moment of healing? Absolutely. If it's okay, is it okay if it's when eternity happens? Absolutely. But I will see a state of perfection. But right now, it's perfecting my conscience. It's perfecting my spirit. It's perfecting my relationships. It's perfecting everything I put my hand to because I realize that I have a finite amount of time to tell as many people about Jesus as I can. And anything that I do to tarnish my behavior tarnishes my ability to talk to them. And so I'll take this trial. Amen. Here's the thing. Here's where we get messed up. Some trials are temporary and intended to be temporary, but we stay in them too long because we're not listening. Oh, man, I'm dealing with this trial. God's only going to keep you in a trial long enough to teach you what you need to know, and then he's going to pull you out of that trial. You're dealing, you're four years in on a six-month trial. Maybe because you're not listening to what God's trying to show you. You're not willing to cut out or let loose of the thing that God wants you to cut out or let loose of. Because his goal is perfecting you. But let's talk about temptation because that's what the scripture's talking about. Temptation is of the enemy. Matter of fact, the Bible says this. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's pretty clear, right? Temptation is not of God. Temptation is the enemy trying to allure us to sinfulness so that our righteousness before God might be tarnished or blocked completely. That's not of God. God's never going to say, hey, do this, if it's going to draw you away from him. Everybody okay? I need you to understand the difference between the two because I want to give you a solution for the temptation. I'm going to give you a four-part solution to the temptation in your life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would dare say everybody in here deals with some kind of temptation in your life. It might be a temptation to watch too much TV. It might be a temptation to, to do whatever. I don't want to spend too much money. It might be a pornography temptation. It might be, it could be anything. But let me tell you, there's, there's a four-point way, blueprint, the Bible gives us to ensure that we can remove ourselves from the temptation, the trap, and the snare of the enemy. Here it is right here. You ready for it? Four parts. I'd write this down. They're pretty simple. James 4, 7, and 8 say this. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the four points. Submit to God. This is actually three. The fourth point comes from a separate text. Submit to God, which means submit to God. Voluntarily be obedient to God, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If I do what the Word says, guess what I'm not doing? Submitting to temptation. Not only submit to God, but resist the devil. An active resistance of the devil requires the Word of God. If I'm going to use anyone as an example regarding how I'm going to live my life, I think Jesus is probably the best person. Amen? And how did Jesus resist the temptation of the enemy? He used the Word of God. He didn't even elaborate on the Word of God. He just threw it out there. He's all, nope, this is what the Word says. And the enemy's all, I did. And then he just left. 
You know, man, I'm just battling with the enemy. Maybe you should stop battling with the enemy and start just declaring the word of God over your life. Anyway, submit to God, resist the devil. And then where you fall short, because you will fall short. I hate to say that, that sounds very pessimistic. But man, we are all made, of, we got feet made of clay, right? We're struggling for perfection. We're moving towards perfection. And the Bible says when we're in the presence of perfection, we will know perfection. But until then, God gave us the Spirit of God to convict us for when we don't quite hit the mark. And when we don't quite hit the mark, we need to be repentant. Wash our hands instead of being double-minded. We think, man, double-minded is a big deal. I'm going to spend my, my energies over here, but my mind over here. I tell you, your mind will eventually take over your energies. So that's three things. That's, that's three things. That's three things. Let me tell you the fourth thing. I'll read the text first. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I know I'm a little over. I'm about to be done. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Boy, you can take that to the bank. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Amen. Man, I love that. But that's only half the verse. It gets us in trouble. We're all, yeah, man, it's cool, but God's not going to tempt me beyond what, it, what I can handle. The God ain't tempting you, bro. It says this, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So what's the first point or the fourth point? Take the out. Take the out. You know why you've been indwelled with the Holy Spirit? So that you'll recognize the out when the temptation comes. Whether God opens a window, opens a door, does whatever he needs to do. Maybe somebody calls and you're in the middle of doing something stupid. Somebody calls and says, hey man, you want to hang out? That's your out. Take the out. That way you're not isolated. You're not doing something ignorant. Take the out. And when we take the out, when we do these four things, when we submit to God, resist the devil, repent when we fall short, and take the out, the promises that we have is that we will be removed from evil. Isn't that good? So what, what, what am I trying to do here? Last two weeks, I've been just trying to show you. Hang your prayers on this outline. Pray this prayer if you want to. But no, God wants to be intimately familiar with you, with your needs, with your even with your understanding of Him. Because if I, as I declare my understanding of Him, if it's flawed, guess what? Bible says, "Draw near to Him, and He'll do what? Draw near to you." So He'll be like, "Hey, man, you're flawed right there a little bit. Let me show you a little of my glory." I then, y'all ever had a wrong perception of God, and then God showed you something, and you're all, "Oh, that's good." Me too. And then Jesus ends this teaching just like he started. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He starts and ends in praise. He sandwiches all his needs in praise. He says this, for yours is the kingdom. It's not my kingdom, it's your kingdom. I just ask that you give me an opportunity to grow it. God, so that you might be glorified in my life. God, I ask that your power be demonstrated over me and through me. That as I declare the gospel so that your kingdom might come, 
Lord, that those words by the power of your Holy Spirit have power to change the hearts of men. Because it's not something I can do. I don't have the persuasive ability to do it. But God, also, I, I know that you are supremely powerful and I thank you that you keep your hand of protection, your hedge of protection, your love and your energies focused on me. In all the universe, you know my name. That's by your power. And for that, I give you glory. What do I say when I say glory? When Moses says, show me your glory, what was he asking God? He was asking God, God, show me the weight of who you are. That's what glory means, the full weight of. That's why God said, I can't show you that. That'll kill you. But guess what? He'll show you a piece. He'll hide you in a rock and say, I'll give you, I'll show you a little bit. And then as you understand that piece of glory, guess what he'll do? He'll reveal a little more of his glory. And he'll reveal a little more of his glory. And we need to praise God for that. God, thank you for your glory. Thank you for the full weight of who you are. Thank you that you haven't just shown me, but you continue to show me. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you continue to show me and in showing me, grow me in Christ's likeness. Isn't that beautiful? We need to reframe the prayer into an outline and let it, when we can, be a guide for our prayers so that our conversations are intentional. Amen? Amen. Amen.